Thank you so much. Well, it's lovely to see um, so many of you here today and um, some new faces as well. Just wanted to welcome you as well. If you're here for the first time, it's lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. And many of our families who are back um, for the first time in a long time uh, since, yeah, since gosh, before we went into the Forget Me Not Club was a long time. So uh, welcome back to our families as well. It's a real blessing to have kids ministry going on again HCC kids praise the lord um so we're going to be in matthew's gospel we're continuing our series on prayer today and we are beginning the first petition of the lord's prayer so open up your bibles we're in matthew chapter 6 and today we reach verse 9 wonderful I am going to pray in a moment. Um, I'm reading from the ESV, uh, but translations of this are pretty standard across the board, whatever you have, whether it's um, NIV or NLT or, God forbid, the Passion. Um, There will be a bin at the back if you want to burn copies on the way. I'm joking. All right, it's okay. It's all right. Don't get offended. (laughs) Only playing with you. Awesome. So, Father God, thank you for your word to us. We thank you, Lord, that um, there are no human words that are infallible. There are no human words that are eternal. Um, There are no human words, Lord God, that can speak to the depth that your words can speak to. And so I pray today as I preach your word, as I open up your holy scriptures, that I would be able to communicate them well, that they would be for the upbuilding of this church And that we would see your hand moving supernaturally as we uncover this wonderful word to us. Lord, I pray that the word of God would go forth unchecked. And Father, that you would help me to preach it just as it is. Um, And Father, that we would grow because of it. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the verse for us today is this. Very simply, verse 9. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This first line of what's referred to as the Lord's Prayer is known around the world. Everybody in this room is super familiar with those words. It's recited by millions of Christians daily as part of their devotional time. And uh, it's a verse that even non-believers are able to recite from memory such is its pervasiveness. And many of you will have grown up reciting these words in school assemblies, in religious gatherings. And to be honest, for me, sometimes it just it blows my mind that these words, which are recited around the world by people who don't even know Jesus, were spoken by this young Jewish teacher some 2,000 years ago in a very distant land. You know, he didn't pen these words in his own version, his his ancient version of your best life now. You know, these words were never published in a book. It was before the internet. It came long before social media. Yet the words spoken by Jesus in some obscure part of the world are remembered today and recited all over this planet. Don't you sometimes find those things amazing? For me, if anything, it's it's the fact that God has sustained the history of Christ and his words all over the world that just to me proves uh, the supernatural power of Christ. So 
we know that uh, this prayer, which is found in Matthew 6 and also uh, in Luke 11, there is another record of this prayer, Luke 11 verses 2 to 4. We know that it's had a special significance in the life of the church, even from the very earliest days. We know that whenever the church would gather to worship, that the Lord's Prayer was very often prayed. It was recited by the whole church. And it's debated whether Jesus actually intended for the the prayer that he reads here to be used that way. Um, It's debated whether he intended for it to be literally repeated word for word by believers, or whether he just simply taught it as a kind of general model or example of how we are to pray. Personally, I, I believe that both usages of the prayer, both reciting it word for word and utilizing it as a model, both of those ways of using the Lord's Prayer are of benefit to us. I think that reciting it together when we pray, uh, it actually brings a unity. It brings a unity and a purpose and an agreement around the truths of this wonderful prayer. But on the other side, if we, if we never let the Lord's Prayer be more to us than just words that we recite, if we just make it into liturgy and it has no other power to speak to us, then I think we've missed the point. I think we've missed the point of what Jesus was actually trying to teach. Jesus certainly meant for this prayer, I think, to be recited, but moreover, and perhaps in a greater sense, He wants this prayer to encompass and to influence all of our praying. All of our prayers should be shaped and formed by this one prayer that He prays. And I believe that the more that we unpack this wonderful passage of Scripture, the more that it will influence the way that we pray. Matthew's gospel contains the fuller version of the prayer, and while Luke's gospel contains a shorter, more sort of pared-down version, I'm going to engage in a little bit of apologetics with you now, because there are always questions. Whenever we see in one of the gospels a particular rendering of what Jesus says, and then in another gospel we see slightly different words, skeptics will question, well, which is the true version? You know, there are, there are a number of different versions of what was written above Jesus' cross, aren't there, recorded in the Gospels? Well, why is that? Why is that? Was one of the Gospels wrong? These are the questions we have to an- ask of ourselves, and also when we engage with non-believers, hopefully we have a, an answer, a ready defense for this. So, did Luke copy it down wrong? Did he forget certain details of this prayer? Or Is Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer embellished? Has he added certain bits of it to make it sound nicer? Certainly, uh, the end of the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the glory now and forever. Uh, This is a later edition. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. So what do we say then? Has Luke forgotten certain bits of the Lord's Prayer or has Matthew added to it? Well, there are differences between the two accounts. In Luke 11... Jesus is responding to one of his disciples who asks the question, Lord, teach us to pray. Whereas in this account, in Matthew's gospel, this teaching on the Lord's Prayer actually forms part of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. What can we deduce from that? Well, it's highly likely that just like any teacher, if any of you have ever taught in any capacity, you'll know that there are certain lessons, certain 
teachings that you will repeat. You'll repeat dependent on what the audience is, where you are, whether this teaching is particularly pertinent for the people that you're speaking to. You'll, you'll repeat certain teachings. And I think it's very highly likely that Jesus repeated this teaching on prayer on numerous occasions to different people. And Matthew and Luke record two separate occasions upon which Jesus taught this, maybe using slightly different words. And if you were following what I was saying earlier, I think that also lends weight to the theory that Jesus taught this prayer primarily as an example to us of how we're to pray rather than as liturgy that we're supposed to repeat word for word. The Lord's Prayer, or perhaps more accurately, the disciples' prayer, since the Lord Himself is not going to ask for forgiveness of sins, is He? This is more accurately called the disciples' prayer. And this prayer consists of six petitions. Six petitions. The first three petitions, you know what a petition is? Everybody, I know it's Sunday afternoon, we've had our dinner, we've had our lunch. A petition is simply something that we ask, we petition for, okay? There are six petitions in the disciples' prayer. And the first three, the first three petitions relate to God. They relate to God. The first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer relate firstly to Him. They are for His glory, for His rule, and for His purposes. The latter three petitions relate to us and our needs, whether material or spiritual. And the order of these groupings, I don't think it should escape our notice. I don't think that anything in Scripture is insignificant. I don't know about you, but when the Bible tells me that it's the Word of God and that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that means that the genealogies are breathed out by God. That means that every single verse, every stanza, every single portion of Scripture has been given to us by inspiration and it has a purpose. There's no verses of Scripture that are not God-breathed. And therefore, there is significance in everything. Doesn't that blow your mind sometimes? How many of you read the Bible daily? How many of you do Bible plans? I do. I love, I love Bible plans. And I've been doing the Bible, uh, reading the Bible through in a year for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. And every year, there's something new. Do you find that? Every time you read the Bible, every time you open up a psalm that you know like the back of your hand, there's something new. It's because it's the Word of God. It's multifaceted. It's like a kaleidoscope. You turn it one degree and all of a sudden you see something different. And so, I think this is wonderful. I think this is significant. That The first three petitions in prayer are petitions directed at God. Not at our needs, but at Him. I think it's peculiar to all of us that our tendency in prayer, certainly for me, but my tendency in prayer, I don't know about you, is to get straight to the matter at hand. Lord, I need such and such right now. Lord, heal this in this person. Lord, please help me. That's my favorite prayer. I don't know about you, but Lord, please help me. Just a general help me. We get straight to the matter at hand. That's the first issue of our prayers very often. 
But this, brothers and sisters, is to get things back to front. According to Jesus, we must first acknowledge God for who He is. We must give Him glory for who He is. We must acknowledge His purposes and His glory before we get to our temporal concerns. God before man, the eternal before the temporal, the spiritual before the natural. When we start with God in prayer, what it does is it puts our needs, our trials, and our concerns into the proper perspective. It puts them in their rightful place. I want you to look with me just quickly in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah 32, and we'll begin in verse 16. He's been imprisoned. Jeremiah's been thrown in jail by his own king for prophesying, for speaking the word of God. The king didn't like it. The king wanted him to prophesy. Other than that, he prophesied. So he threw him in jail. And now the whole city is under siege. The armies of Babylon have surrounded them and things are looking bleak. And here is Jeremiah locked up in jail, surrounded by enemy armies. Things are not looking very good. They're not looking particularly rosy for our friend Jeremiah. So what does he pray? How does he pray? In verse 16, listen to this. I prayed to the Lord, saying, Our Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and to this day in Israel, and among all mankind, have made a name for yourself, as at this day. You brought your people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, and with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers, and gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come upon the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who were fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Jesus teaches us to pray like Jeremiah did. Despite all of the immediate problems facing Jeremiah, where does he begin in his prayer? He begins by telling God who he is, by glorying in what God has done, by thanking God Simply that He is God. That's where He begins. The Lord's Prayer 
teaches us to do the same. When everything around us seems difficult and challenging and painful and we don't understand, where are we to begin with our prayers? By first addressing the one who sits on the throne of glory. First, by acknowledging that we have an audience with the King of the cosmos, of Yahweh, by telling Him who He is. And as we do that, as we begin to acknowledge the Lord of hosts, our sovereign King and Redeemer, our Father, as we begin to do those things in prayer, we'll find that we have less to pray at the other end of it. We find that our problems begin to shrink in our own viewing, and we begin to see the majesty of God and His plan woven throughout all of our circumstances. Isn't that true? You know this prayer, Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We're so familiar with it, aren't we? It's like something that we just grow up saying. If you've grown up in church, you'll know certain things. You know, Jesus died for your sins. We've heard that a million times. Or Jesus loves you. Sometimes when you've heard something over and over and over again, it can almost lose its flavor, can't it? It's like if you eat the same kind of food over and over and over again. It loses, I'm looking at Darren now. When he has those curries now, at the summer house, when it opens back up again, over and over, eventually he needs to move on. He needs to try a masala club or somewhere else because he needs to find that other flavor. You know it's true. And um, it's the same thing when we recite the same things over and over. Sometimes they lose their meaning. They lose their significance. So let's unpack this first line. Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. What does it mean? Well, as we just read in the Heidelberg Catechism, why did Christ command us to call God our Father? The answer is to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer what should be basic to our prayer. So this thing is actually supposed to awaken something in you as a believer. It's supposed to cause a light to go on in your soul when you pray those two words, our Father. Something's supposed to switch on. It's supposed to awaken you to the truth that God is not just a Father, but He's your Father. And what does that then mean when you pray to your Father in heaven? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism says, just as our parents do not refuse us the things of this life, even less will God refuse to give us what we ask in faith. That's the light bulb that's supposed to go on when we pray those two simple words, our Father. Notice Jesus didn't invite you to pray to the Father or to a Father or to even His Father, but to our Father. Our Father. Prayer is something that only a child of God can do. Only a child of God can truly pray. The desire to pray is something special and peculiar to those who have been born again as the children of God. To those who know they have a heavenly Father who loves them, 
who calls them by name, who carefully knit them together in their mother's womb, as Psalm 139 says, who treats them always with patience and loving kindness. That's a good word, isn't it? Who does not count their sins against them, Psalm 103, and gives them Christ. Hallelujah. Romans 8. Prayer to them is not a chore. It's not a chore. It's a delight. It's a delight. So listen to me now. If you struggle with prayer, how many of you do? I struggle with prayer sometimes. I struggle. I struggle with prayer sometimes. And instead of beating yourself up about that, instead of endlessly trying new methods to pray, instead of constantly feeling guilty as a Christian that you're somehow missing the mark, Instead of trying to improve on these methods, why don't you just stop and meditate for a moment on the truth of this one fact. God is your Father. God, say it, God is my Father. God is my Father. He's your Father. I think even... In the original, in Greek, it's pater humon, which is father of ours, right? But in the way that Jesus would have said it in Aramaic, it would have been abinu, or it's a derivative of abba, which is literally daddy in the Aramaic language. There's a sense of real intimacy in those words. We are not talking about an austere, distant father who barely knows you by name, who forgets who you are, we're talking about the father of the Bible, you know, who, know, who numbers the sheep on a thousand hills, who can count the very hairs on your head, that's your father. He knows you intimately. Isn't that wonderful? Next time you're struggling with prayer, remind yourself of those two simple words, our father, that means me, he's my father. Moreover, the fact that Jesus teaches us to pray our Father and not my Father tells us two things, right? Number one, that we not only have a Father, but we also have what? Brothers and sisters. Our Father means that there are others who call Him Father too. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not alone in this world. And we're not alone in prayer either. Prayer is something that we ought to look to do with our brothers and sisters together. There's the importance of sharing our prayer life with brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to pray together. And I think if the lockdowns, brothers and sisters, have taught us anything, it should be our absolute need of one another. Prayer can be solitary. We've covered this, haven't we, a few weeks ago. We talked about Jesus' solitary prayer life. Prayer can be solitary, but it must never be only solitary. Prayer is something that we do together, our Father. That knowledge should give us such a boldness in prayer. Such a confidence in prayer, a freedom of conscience to know that when we come before Him in prayer, we're not despised. We're not sneered at. We're not mocked. We're welcomed and we're loved. I think sometimes one of the biggest blockages 
to prayer is what goes on inside your head when you're trying to pray. It's your conscience playing games with you. And the enemy starts to get in there, doesn't he? Listen to how silly you sound. Oh, is that really how your voice sounds? Wow. It's pretty awful, isn't it? And you start to get these niggling pains in your conscience which begin to stop you from praying. But if we know He's our Father, that's all we need to dispel all of that. If my children walk into me, I've said this a million times, but it's the best example. Am I going to mock their voice when they ask me for something at night? Am I going to belittle them for what they require? No. And I'm what the Bible calls a wicked father. You being evil know how to give good gifts. The Bible calls me an evil father. Evil in the sense that I'm a moral monster? No, but evil in comparison with God the Father. He is a perfect father. Is he going to belittle your needs? Is he going to ridicule you when you come before him in prayer and ask for whatever it is that's in your heart to ask? No, he's going to welcome you. He's going to hear you out. That should clear our conscience, shouldn't it, as we come to the place of prayer. Our Father in heaven. I always used to think that second bit was a bit redundant. Our Father in heaven. Okay, great. We're, we're, we're talking about a spatial location then for God. He's in heaven. That's where he's at. He's in heaven. Great. Well, I think in these days we don't really think of heaven and of that phrase, God in the heavens, or our Father in heaven, we don't have the same pictures in our heads, or the same kind of thought pattern in our heads that the first century Jews would have had. For us, we think, oh, location. You know, we're talking about where he's at. We think, okay, he's in heaven. But we know from Scripture that it can't be telling us that God is located simply in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 6, it says, But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. It cannot contain him. Heaven can't contain God. So therefore, he cannot simply be in heaven. We teach our kids this. Where is God? And they respond, God is everywhere. Amen? He's not contained in heaven. So this remark can't simply be telling us about his spatial location. Rather, when the Bible speaks of God being in the heavens, it's always a reference to one particular thing. Whenever you'll see in the Old Testament, God is in the heavens, right? It's talking about one thing in particular. This phrase, he's in the heavens, refers to God's sovereign power and reign over all things that exist and all things that will ever exist. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Wow. Psalm 115 
Not us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is where? In the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? And then finally, this is a really pertinent um, verse for today, Ecclesiastes 5.2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So in this first line of the Lord's Prayer, we, number one, we acknowledge our intimacy with Him, that through Christ we are His children. He is our Father. But then in the same breath, we acknowledge that our Father is absolutely sovereign over all things in His creation. Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And Paul writes in Ephesians 1.11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. This is your God. This is your Father who you pray to. Isn't that wonderful? In the same breath you acknowledge that He's your Father. He's your Abba in the same line. You acknowledge that He is absolutely sovereign. That He controls and ordains all which shall come to pass. That He is mighty and nobody, as King Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel 7, no one will say to Him, what have you done? No one will turn back His hand. Nobody can flout the purposes of God. You know, I once heard a a preacher say in reference to prayer that God can't do anything without your permission. As if prayer was the act of mankind sovereignly decreeing what shall and shall not come to pass. But Jesus teaches us quite the reverse about prayer. The first thing you acknowledge in prayer is that it is God who reigns, not you, not me. It's He who does all that He pleases, not us. Even your prayers, brothers and sisters, even the things you pray in secret, even they are part of God's sovereign decree. He leads you to pray for whatever is in His purposes for you to pray for. Isn't that wonderful? And He even times it. He gets you praying for what He wants you to pray for at the exact time He wants you to pray for it. He stirs your heart. Have you ever had your heart stirred to pray for something suddenly? That's the hand of God. That's Him sovereignly moving and stirring His children saying, I want you to pray for this situation here. Because God co-labors with us as His children, doesn't He? He doesn't have to. He's not out there in heaven going, oh, you know, I really want to accomplish this purpose, but, but no one's listening. And I just can't seem to, 
I can't do anything unless they declare the right things and pray the right things and, um, and say in faith whatever I want them to say. I'm, I'm kind of got my hands tied. That's not a God we're talking about. That's a genie. That's the genie from Aladdin. That's not Yahweh of the Bible. Yahweh of the Bible does all that He pleases, both in the heavens and in the earth, and He uses His children, and He uses you and I in prayer to accomplish His glorious purposes on the earth. Aren't you pleased about that? That your prayer life is actually ordained of God? And that the little random things you pray for are actually ordained by Him for you to pray for them? Wow. Hallowed be your name. I want for us to just take for a moment this truth that when we pray, we aren't changing God's mind. When we pray, we're not changing His mind. We're not changing God. He's changing us. Yes, in response to prayer, He heals. Yes, in response to prayer, things change. But it is not God who's changing but you certainly are changed. You certainly are changed. It's through prayer that we are crafted and shaped by Him. Hallowed be your name. What does it mean for God's name to be hallowed, brothers and sisters? What does that mean? We don't really say that word an awful lot, do we? What does it mean for God's name to be hallowed? Well, it's the same root word as holy in Greek. The word is hagiasthathe, tough to say. The root word is holy. May your name be holy. May your name be holy. Hallowed be your name. But why would we pray for God's name to be holy? It already is holy, isn't it? God's name couldn't be any holier. He is the holy of holy. So why pray for something that already is? Well, the truth of the matter is, we're not praying for God's name that it might be holy, as if it weren't already what we're praying for is that God's name might be reckoned holy in your life, in the world, in the church, that God's name would be reckoned just as holy as it really is. Is this truth, isn't there, about sin that it blinds us? Sin is a blindness. So when we, through sinful eyes, look at the holiness of God, you know, at first, we're not able to see it clearly. It's like looking at something without my glasses on. I can't quite focus on it, and I can't read it. I can't see that back wall sign. I can't read what it says. It's the same when a sinner looks at God. He can't appreciate the glory and holiness of God. And then the Holy Spirit comes along and begins to put lenses on us, and we go, wow, wow, God is holy. And that's when we begin to hallow His name. That's what to hallow God's name is. Matthew Henry, who was a, a great Bible commentator, he said this, We fix our end, and it is the right end to be aimed at, and ought to be our chief and ultimate end in all our petitions, that God may be glorified. All our other requests must be in subordination to this and in pursuance of it. Whatever our lot in life, Whatever your station, whatever you're living through in the present season, all our other requests in prayer must be subordinated 
to seeking the glory of God in all things. We say this, God, whether I'm healed or not, may your name be glorified. Whether I receive that promotion or not, may you be glorified in it. God, all my successes that you've given to me, may may they be to your glory. And God, when you humble me in the dust, may it be to your glory. Hallelujah. God is a God who seeks his own glorification. It's his prerogative. It's what he does. It's his purpose. It's his pleasure. And the church is embarrassed about it. The church is embarrassed of the truth of God seeking his own glory in the earth. It's not arrogant for God to seek his own glory, brothers and sisters. It's not presumptuous. It's not pretentious or vain. Because God alone is worthy of all the glory and all the praise and all the worship. It is righteous for God to seek His own glory. It's presumptuous for you to seek His glory. It's pretentious for any man or woman to seek glory that is owed to God. He will not share His glory with another. The church has a problem with this. It's what the reformers called soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. You know, our heart in prayer must be first that God's name be glorified in and through your life. God, may you be glorified in all that you do in me and all that you do through me. Father in heaven, may others glorify you because of the work you're doing in me. May I receive none of the glory. In fact, Lord, may I remain hidden in many ways from receiving any kind of glory or praise. But may you be glorified, Jesus. May you receive glory. The glory of God, as the Westminster Catechism puts it, is the chief end of life. It's the chief end of every life. Not just lives that, cho- that choose to turn to Jesus, but every life will be to the glory of God. Whether he chooses to save that sinner or whether he chooses to damn that sinner to eternal hell, he will be glorified in their destruction just as he will be glorified in the salvation of, the, of his people. That's a brutal truth, but it's true. That's what your Bible says. God will be glorified in the earth. And when we pray, we set out by starting as our number one place. God, may you be glorified today. May you be glorified. Before I get to my needs, let me ask, Father, may I play some role in glorifying you today. Whatever might come my way. The ultimate end of all things, not just people's lives, but every circumstance that you face in this life, which is a blink of an eye, isn't it? We don't know when our lives will be required of us. This life is a blink of an eye, but everything in it, every small circumstance in your life is to the glory of God. 
everything will be worked to his ultimate glory. Difficult to understand how when we face challenging and painful circumstances, but it will be to his glory. As Romans 8 says, he works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purposes. God has chosen to glorify himself in you. He's chosen to glorify himself through saving sinners. The Bible says we were literally his enemies, but he chose to save us through Christ Jesus. That is his sovereign choice of how to glorify himself, is that he's saving you. Only children, only children of God know how to truly pray the Lord's Prayer. Only children of God can say these words without squirming on the inside when they truly know their meaning. My question is, are you a child of God today? When I tell you of these things, that He is your Father, but that also He is absolutely sovereign over all things pertaining to your life, do you love that truth? Does that encourage you to pray? Then you know you're a child of God. There's a real sense in which everybody who's ever been created is of God, in the sense that we're all His offspring. As Paul says in his preach in the Areopagus, but the other side of that is that not all are truly God's children. We know that Jesus called the Jews in John 8, He called them children of the devil. Only those who believe in the Lord Jesus can truly be called the children of God. And my question is, can you pray that first line of the Lord's Prayer? Can you say, Father in heaven? Have you made your peace with God? Are your sins dealt with or do you still carry them? I know most of you have made that choice to follow Jesus, but I don't know that all of you have, and that's why we always give opportunity for people to hear the gospel. It's never too late or too early to turn to Jesus. Will you come to Jesus today? Will you pray this prayer together with us? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's pray, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up again. If you'd like prayer for anything after we finish, please come in and speak to me. Um, we'll be up here. I'd be happy to pray for you. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? You can pray with me. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom the power and the glory now 
and forever. Amen. And Lord, we pray as we go from this place that we'd be greatly encouraged by this truth that you're a father who knows us, who cares for us, who's intimately aware of every circumstance in our lives. Lord, we pray we'd be greatly encouraged by that in prayer. And also, God, we'd seek your glory every day in prayer that you might get the first fruits of our prayer life. Before we begin with our practicals, we pray and acknowledge the God of heaven. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, worship team, and hello, kids. Should we stand and let's sing one final song together? And then there's teas and uh, coffees going to be served afterwards in the kitchen, so please stay around. It's literally the first time in, gosh, like a year since we've properly been able to do that. So please do stick around, have a cup of tea, and have a chat. That would be wonderful. And lots of cake. Lots of cake as well, Gray. Cake. Cake. Lots of cake.